Good morning. Man, okay, so a few years ago, I was whitewater rafting with a few of my friends. There was four, of, four friends and myself, and we were uh, deciding to go down this river that had a number of class three, but even more class four rapids. And uh, as we were putting into the river, uh, we had a guide, and we noticed something about our raft. All of us noticed there was this uh, patch on the raft, okay? Now, if you've done extreme sports at all, like extreme sports, that doesn't mean that that's a patch. That could be a decal. It could be a sticker, like on your skateboard, your surfboard, whatever, right? Even your raft. So my friend goes, hey, is that a decal or is that a patch? And that was a good question. And our guide said, well, that's a patch, but it's really strong and it'll hold. Now, for context, my friends are incredibly daring, okay? Risk takers. And so I have a concern as we're going down the river about that patch. We get halfway down the river to where we can't turn back and there's no getting out from here where there are more class four rapids than there are class three rapids. And my friends decide to show just how daring they are. We start trying to barrel roll the raft, 360 the raft. They're trying to do everything they can with this raft as the, like in the true form of risk takers they are. And what they did was they drove us straight up on a boulder. They ran us aground on a boulder and that patch didn't hold. All of a sudden, pop. And now the guide is looking at us and laughing going, oh, you guys really do like to have fun. Well, now it's going to be real fun. Because you have to get this deflated piece of nylon off this boulder and there's nowhere to go but down the river on it. And so he was like, you have to sit a little differently now. You got to get in closer. But you're going to... I'm going to teach you how to get down the river on this piece of plastic. Now, how many of you have been to one of those inflatable places, you know, or played on inflatables, you know? And what happens with air and vinyl, right? Things bounce. And that's what made whitewater rafting fun. When you don't have air, guess what? No give, no bounce. So you literally feel every boulder every rapid, everything all the way down. And we are literally floating on a piece of plastic all the way down for the second half of that river. I got out, my tailbone is sore, my backside is bruised, and I roll straight to the depot and go, hey, I want my money back. I want my money back because nobody should be expected to go down the river with that thing. Do not try patching that again. Throw that thing out. I don't want anyone to suffer what I just did. And I say that to say this. Last week, we had a break. Last week, we took a break in our Galatians series, and we had Freedom Weekend, and it was amazing. We saw students literally come to Christ. We saw them freed, made whole by Jesus, from death to life, all together new. How tragic would it be if we then shackled them with religious rigor and rules? How terrible would it be if we take those who have come to new life and we put on them something that God never intended for them? 
And I say this to say, the law is what Paul is teaching against here in this passage. In Galatians, we're getting into a really meaty part of chapter 3. And in Galatians, this letter was always intended so that Jew and Gentile would know how to worship together under the same roof, the same God. They were now brothers and sisters, no longer separated, no longer segregated, but one church. There wasn't a Jewish church and a Gentile church. They were just the church of Jesus. And what was happening was you had these Judaizers coming in and saying, no, 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 no. You Gentiles have never understood the weight of sin that was removed, so you need to become Jewish before you can become a Christian. You need to become Jewish and practice the law before you can truly be free. In order to truly experience in grace, you need to know the way of the law. And the reality is this. When they tried to place upon the Gentile, when they tried to put upon them the law, it was nothing more than a decal. Because what Jesus sets right, what Jesus saves is made completely whole, right? He's the healer, so it's made completely whole. There's no longer a fracture, no longer a puncture, no longer a need to be filled. It's been filled by him. But what they were trying, and Paul's fighting against, these Judaizers are trying to impose on Gentiles, he's going, you got to have this patch. you got to have the patch of the law because there's still something in you that's incomplete. Jesus didn't fix it all. And that is a false gospel. That's a lie. So today, Paul's fighting for the fact it's all on God, all of it. And so this is the promise we have in Galatians 3.15, and this is your sermon title for today. It is on God. It's on him. We're not going to try to patch holes where a foundation or a structure needs to be altogether replaced. How many of you know that religion always demands more than it can offer? How many know religious rigor always demands more than what's required? Religion always seeks to control what is sovereignly in God's hands. And here's the hole that we had. This is the patch that they were trying to fix with the law. We live in a sinful and selfish world, one that the law could never repair for us. Even the law when it was handed to Moses and beyond, was intended to be a place and a vehicle of worship for him. But just, but just like my friends, let me tell you what, just like my friends going down a river with a patched boat, that boat was always going to pop. That hole was never going to hold. Not with my friends. Just like that broken boat going down a river, we handed the law to humans and they mucked it up. They added things to it that God never intended, and they made it nearly impossible to complete. In fact, it says that if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of the entire thing. When we look at what was just purely handed to Moses, and then you look at the law today, you go from what was the Ten Commandments, and then there's going to be dietary laws and things are added. God gave that. But we expose that even further to over 600 some odd laws. If you just look at the basics, and I look at you and I say, how many of you have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. And that makes you what? More than a sinner, that makes you what? A liar. And I, if the law is true, and it says, if you're guilty one, you're guilty the entire thing. Here's how we prove it. If I look at you and say, hey, have you ever killed anyone? You go, no. I go, how would I know? You just told me you're a liar. 
guilty. So it was never intended to fix what only God could. It was a band-aid. The law, the prophets, they were band-aids pointing to God's eventual need to intervene, to fix it all in Jesus. We had a problem, and it extended beyond the garden. If you remember, we had a flood, and then after the flood, we had another problem. It probably became most pronounced at Babel, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, you have one language on the planet. You have a multitude of people, one language. And they gathered in a city east, and they said, we're going to build a city for ourselves that is so beautiful that it's going to have a tower that reaches the heaven. And why did they want to do that? Why did they want to build a tower that reached the heaven? It says in Genesis 11, go back and read it, that we can make our name great. So we can worship ourselves. And God, he says, let's do this before God comes in and scatters us all over the globe and putting up barriers. Let's do this so that we can worship ourselves. God steps in and goes, no, this is not what I intended. This is not what I wanted for you. I did intend you to be one people, but I intended you to be the family of God. I intended you to worship, but not yourselves. I intended you to worship me, united as one. And so what sin set awry in Genesis 11, forced the hand of God. It says that he scattered them to all ends of the earth, giving them multiple cultural backgrounds. It says that he put up language barriers so that they would not understand what each other were saying and confusion happened. How many of you know the scriptures are clear that God is not the author of confusion? Amen? Did God author this confusion? No. What did? Sin and self-worship. God desired that we would worship him as one, the family of God, under him and under his headship. But here we see what happens when we are handed the reins. We are broken. We have a hole. We tried to patch with the law, but only he himself could fix. Because every time we're handed the reins, guess who we're going to worship? ourselves. So God creates an answer for the sin. God begins to enact an answer immediately. If you read through the rest of Genesis 11, what you're going to find is the genealogy of Abram. And in Genesis 12, you're going to see the call of Abraham. God calls Abram to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and to follow him to to the west, to a city, to a land that he will show him. And he says that I'm going to give you this land as an inheritance. I'm going to make you Uh, A man has so many descendants they can't be counted. In fact, I'm going to make you a father of all nations. And all people on the earth, all people who've now been scattered, all peoples, every tribe and tongue will be blessed through you. How many of you remember that that age-old song in preschool? Father Abraham had many sons. Sing it. And many sons had Father Abraham. Right? You don't have to go any further. That's okay. That's all right. All right. What preschool taught us is that your preschool was theologically accurate. That there was, there was a promise given to Abraham. And in order to be a Jew, it was incredibly important to not just be identified with the law, but to be identified with Father Abraham. But how many of you have also heard that story, that age-old statement that says, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself? How many of you know that? How many of you live by that motto a little bit? Okay. That's a terrible motto for a human. It's not a good motto for someone who's going to seek to apprentice or build a team or disciple someone else. That's not a good motto. But when you are God, 
the only one true God available to the planet. If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Amen? How many of you are thankful that God did it himself? Galatians 3.14 says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, what you need to understand is that he called Abram in Genesis 12, and he sealed his promise to humanity in Genesis 15. And I'm going to show you just how covenants were formed in that day. It says this in Genesis 15. Just listen along. It's not going to be on the screen. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, for you, for, uh, and I am your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And what, the one who's going to inherit my state is a leader of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. A servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up to the sky, count the stars if you can, because this will be your offspring. It'll be this numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? How can I know that I'll gain possession of this land? How will I know that all this is about to come true? So the Lord said, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, at least three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite one another. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcass, but Abraham, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that from 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that serves them as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go on to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. Verse 17, and here's where we see it. When the sun had set and darkness fallen, a smoking fire pot and blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of the Egypt to the great river to the Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kezites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephorites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigazites, and the Jebusites. That's a whole lot of sites. All these people, I'm going to give this land to you. Here's what you don't know. In a covenant formed in that day, that's exactly how covenants were supposed to be formed. And it is said that what would happen is the, the two halves of the, the carcasses, the offering, were set apart, directly apart from each other. And anyone who is a member of this covenant was to walk through said carcasses hand in hand, each of which taking equal responsibility in the covenant. Where was Abram when this happened? Where was Abram when the carcasses were going to be walked through, he was asleep. He was asleep right there having a vision. He didn't walk through it. God makes a covenant with Abraham and it says that a torch and a smoking pot of fire walk through this together. 
Who's walking through the carcasses? Who's walking through the offering? God himself. Remember what happened when he talks about these Israelites? He talks about those who will walk and come out of bondage. What led them in the wilderness? By day, what? Cloud of smoke. By night, by fire. He's revealing himself and he says, I am going to make a promise to you, a covenant that I myself am going to keep. I'm going to make this promise. It's on me. It's not on you. You're solely as man, the benefactor, Abram. Okay? So Paul is saying, if you really want to know, Gentiles, what it means to be a Jew, then you need to know this story because this is something your Judaizers aren't telling you. I'm going to tell you how important this is. If you want some history, I know the law better than anyone who's spoken to you yet. And here's what happened. That promise with God was, was made 645 years before the law was given to Moses. It predated and preceded the law of Moses. Let's read it together in Galatians 3. Paul says, brothers and sisters, let me make an example of everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, that has been duly established by two parties. So it is this case. The promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through the angels entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Verse 21. Has the law therefore opposed the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that can impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, that's a lot of Scripture, and I needed to give you the, the covenant picture before we got into what he's talking about here. First thing you need to understand is this. We have to consider our security. Paul's writing to his Galatians and he's telling them, you have to consider the, the security of the covenant. Whether you be Jew or Gentile, you got to understand that you're secure. In Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant was not only established, it was sealed by God himself. And it is on God. He didn't ask Abraham to walk through those carcasses with him. He said, it's going to be on me. It's not going to be on the performance of man. It's going to be on the power of God. Hello? So, he says, unlike any other covenant of that day, which would have required both parties walk between, I went by myself. And I have all equal requirement upon myself to complete this covenant. In this case, God walks between, indicating that he's established this covenant by himself and alone does not rely on man. Abraham is solely a benefactor in this covenant. Unable to ensure Abraham would have never in his life been able to ensure his side of the promise with God. So God doesn't count on him. God doesn't depend on him. 
Man has solely been a factor in the covenant, unable to ensure his side of the bargain. It's salvific and thus solely on God. Amen? What did God tell Abram as he fell asleep? He said this, you're going to see descendants who are going to be slaves in Egypt. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to show them as a precursor salvation. But that's not even it. I'm going to give them this land. But that's just a precursor to what's coming. Everything will be completed. But you will not see it, Abram. You're going to die an old man. But you won't see the things that I'm telling you are going to happen. You're going to die an old man. But you are going to see it completed one day in my son. So what he's saying is this. He told Abraham back in Genesis 15, you have to anticipate Jesus. Abram held to the covenant, the promise given by God, because he anticipated Jesus as the completion. God was coming himself, and thus Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Hello? God was going to do it himself. So we have to consider the schedule. We have to consider the schedule of the covenant. I told you that this promise in Genesis 15 preceded the law that was given to Moses by 645 years. It did. Because that's how much time passed between the handing of this promise to Abraham and the promise of what, or the law that was given to Moses. But you say, but it says here 430 years. What's Paul talking about? Paul is referring to the last time the promise was repeated. In Genesis 28, 15 He repeats the promise to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. The promise that was given in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, he repeats it again in Genesis 28. That is the last time it's stated. Exactly 430 years from that moment he says it to Jacob. Just remember who you are. Remember what's been established. Remember what's been promised to the point the law is given. So it preceded the law. The Abrahamic covenant predated the the Mosaic covenant by decades, centuries, if you will. And we have a tendency, we're always prone to go for what's newfangled, right? You go, well, how's the law newfangled? In God's mind, he set this promise way before the law got here. Hello? God had already established it, and he was going to set right what sin set awry all the way back in, in this period, Genesis 12, when he promised and sealed it in Genesis 15. Here's what I want to encourage you to know. The law didn't supersede the Abrahamic covenant. It only pronounced it. Just like me going down the raft with my freak friends in a boat that has a patch that was always going to explode. God is saying, look, I've got you. That patch only preserved and pronounced your need for a new vessel. That patch only pronounced your need for a new boat. That thing only pronounced your need for a new life that I alone can give you. Jesus said, in me, there's, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life. In John 6, his own disciple said, where can we go from you? Your words have life, and in you alone have life. So what he's saying is, I alone am your vehicle to new life. Stop trying to patch it with your religious rigor. It's never going to fix the hole in you. And for those who in Galatia had already gotten new life, he goes, stop trying to put a Band-Aid on something. Stop walking around with a decal practicing the law. You've already been made whole, amen? 
I'm not going to put on you cuffs. I'm not going to put on you the cuffs of religion. I'm not going to shackle you with religious rigor when you've already been set free. Listen to this statement. I didn't make it, but it's a good one. Man can never succeed in perfectly keeping the law, while God could never fail in perfectly keeping his promises. Amen? So we have to consider the son. He says, look to the seed of the covenant. He says, seed, not seeds. And he's reminding us this is the person of Jesus Christ. We have to look to him. Abraham anticipated Jesus just as much as we look back in hope and in, 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 in faith what Jesus did on the cross. This was a prophetic promise given to Abraham in Genesis. The covenant was promised to Abraham, but intended to be filled, fulfilled every time and always in Jesus alone. It wouldn't be completed till the cross. Hello? So he's trying to tell these Gentiles, look, these Jews don't even know what they're talking about. They've become so newfangled that they're giving you stuff that doesn't even... This preceded even the thing they're trying to get you to practice. It was always going to be about Jesus, and you've already trusted on him. You have new life. Why do you keep trying to walk backwards? This tells us that mankind can trust what Jesus has done to unite us as his people. What we said awry in Genesis 11, what happened? We said, let's build a tower unto ourselves to make our name great. And God goes, no, 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 no. You were always designed to worship me. So in, until I can set this right at the cross, you're going to be dispersed. And you're going to have language barriers. You're going to have cultural barriers. You're going to be set all over the, or all over the earth. And you're going to depend on me to be reunited. You're going to be reunited under my headship as the family of God. All tribe, all tongue, unified under my headship, worshiping me rather than yourself like at Babel. And Paul goes on to write why this is important in Galatians 3.26. We're going to get into this next week, but let me just tell you where he's going. He says this, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise given to Abraham. Hello? How many of you remember that other preschool ditty that went... Jesus loves the little children. Go ahead. They are red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his... They. That's okay. We can worship that. Hey, you didn't know how theologically accurate your preschool minister was, right? Trying to give you these songs. Here's the truth. What he is saying, Paul's trying to give us in Galatians 3. He's trying to say, in Genesis 11... When we were handed the reins, we were scattered and punished for our self-worship. We were divided, segregated, separated. These people had lived this way. Jews and Gentiles had no dealings with each other. They, they considered Gentiles, Jews considered Gentiles dogs. They considered Samaritans worse. What is Paul saying? If you're, if you're Jewish and you speak Hebrew as your native tongue, learn Greek. 
What is he saying to the Greek? If you speak Greek as a native tongue, learn Hebrew. Because there is no Jewish church. There's no Gentile church. You're supposed to worship together under one roof. And as brothers and sisters, you need to know the cultural divide that separated you so that you can be reunited in Jesus. Do not let language barriers stand in your way any longer. He said, you have to allow what God has done to reunite you under him as the head. This entire letter in Galatians was to help us understand that we're to live together in Jesus, multicultural, multilingual, yet unified, every tribe and every tongue. How does this affect us? Well, if Paul's writing to a people in this day, and he says, there's no such thing as a Jewish church and a Gentile church. How would he write to us today? There's no such thing as a white church, a black church, a Korean church, an Arabic church. No such thing. And we should not be siloed into our preferences or the places where we can communicate solely. We don't need to be siloed into the places where birds of a feather flock together. Amen? We should not be siloed into those places. We are one church under him. Do you know what I've learned? I was just teaching in Mount Juliet. In Mount Juliet, when we went to serve Mount Juliet High just a few, uh, few months ago, I got to talk with the, the head of ESL. The, do you know that there are over 20 languages spoken at Mount Juliet High School? Over 20 languages. How many of you would guess that the second tongue to English would be Spanish? Raise your hands. How many of you think it's Spanish? The predominant language outside of English in that high school is Arabic. The third is Farsi. The fourth is Spanish. So the world around us, specifically right here in Middle Tennessee, has globalized. And the question is, did the church even recognize it? Because the gospel is setting people free. And you go, well, what does that have to do with me? Start learning Arabic. Hello? What does that mean? You should not allow the gospel that frees all humanity, all created in his image, because you have a language barrier. You go, I don't know what to do. Start learning Farsi. Start learning Spanish. Because we should be able to share with our friends the gospel. We just had students from Mount Juliet High School freed from the shackles of sin last weekend. I don't want to shackle them with, hey, come to church, sing a few songs, wait till you're old, and you can vote on stuff. I want to unlock them for the kingdom. I want to send them into their high school. I want them learning to share the gospel in a different tongue so that their friends that don't look like them, don't sound like them, come from a different background, can hear the gospel. And if they already know the gospel, why are they not worshiping here? Why have we not welcomed them under our roof? Do you know the highest Kurdish population in all of America is in Nashville? You sit in Davidson County, the highest Curtis population per capita in the nation, in all of North America. Do you know this, that we have one of the highest Somali populations in all of North America? And guess what? They're not here. So until we, as a people, in this place, under this roof, start to represent a multifaceted blanket of colors and cultures, worshiping him together in collective gatherings, stretching from here to all ends of the earth, then folks, we got work to do for the gospel. Amen? 
We got some things that we can do. We got steps that we can take to get the gospel that frees in him alone to our friends who sit just down the street. What that means is we can never be satisfied. We can't become solely comfortable in homogenous gatherings where birds of a feather flock together. Hey, listen, how many of you know of a, a foreign, a church that worships in a foreign tongue somewhere near us right now? You just raise your hand. Can I ask you a question? Why have we never prayed with them? Have you ever served with them before? Have you, have you ever gone into their restaurants, like some of the Somali restaurants down Murfreesboro Pike or gone down Nolensville Pike where it's just the world is represented? How, how often do we go in there and we bless those, we bless those businesses with our, with our resources, with that which we've, we've got? How many of you know that we suffered a little bit this past year? How many of you have been given a lot and that is to be a blessing? How many of you know that when you go into those places, it's not to rip them off, you should tip better than anyone else in there? You should bless them. And how many of you think it would mean a lot to them if all of a sudden you spoke to them in their native tongue? Because you learned and you cared enough to learn. Hey, I have a a brother-in-law who's deaf. He sits in silence. He sits siloed and secluded away from other people. I have taken 20 some odd years to kind of fumble through sign language. I can kind of do it. You know what he does? I apologized in a letter I wrote to him recently on his birthday. I said, man, I just want to say thank you for being patient with me as I've learned to sign so that I can communicate with you. Through the years, I know that I, I just haven't done the great job. He goes, you know what? I just care that you try. I just care that you care enough to try to not leave me out. Folks, who are we leaving out? That's the challenge that we should have. So, last point, consider it settled. There's a sealing of the covenant that came by God and by Jesus alone. He did it himself. The law was important, but it was always inferior to the promises of God. It was intended to be a worship of vehicle, but uh, I mean a vehicle of worship, but we ruined that too. Verse 18 says, For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. Now it depends on our performance. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. If the inheritance was based on the law, then it depend on man's performance. But what was granted to Abraham by means of a promise depends, listen to this, on God's power. How many of you want to live in the presence of God's power? How many of you want the move of the kingdom As much as you depended on God's power for your salvation, you want to depend on God's power in the advance of the kingdom more than you do your performance. So you're learning Arabic or you're learning a different tongue is solely so you can join him in his power to reach someone else. Hello? And not stand off to the side and go, I hope someone does it. Amen? I hope someone learns. This is just so we can join God in what he's doing. Karo's says this. This is the word. It says to give graciously. Speaks to a permanent state of inheritance. How many of you are grateful that no one can take your salvation from you? No amount of evil or good will ever rip you from the hand of God. Amen? 
Now let me ask you this, are you gonna be a taker or are you gonna be a giver? If God was gracious enough to give to you, are you also gonna give that away? Are we just gonna be benefactors or are we gonna be active? He says this, truth, man could never succeed at keeping the law. We just talked about that, you're a liar. Well, God can never fail at keeping his promises perfectly. Verse 21 says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteous would certainly have come by the law. But life cannot come by the law. Write that down. Life cannot come by religious law or rigor. God is okay with us developing disciplines that cultivate intimacy with him, like reading the scriptures, like praying, like giving generously. Those only cultivate more of him in our lives and less of ourselves. But we can never count on law to be the means of salvation or the mode by which he wants to reach the world. The covenant was sealed in Genesis 15, pointed to God keeping his end of the agreement in Jesus. And today I'm a benefactor, but I want other people to benefit, amen? So what do I feel? I feel like I already, I walked into this year going, man, I need to, I need to familiarize myself again with Spanish. I used to know that pretty well. I need to be better at sign because there's a whole deaf community around us that I, I didn't even really know existed. And there's a school for them not a mile from here. Hello? I, I need to learn Arabic because I'm in Mount Juliet too much to not know Arabic. Hello? There's something that I can do. Paul's trying to point to the inability of the law in our life. It's never going to impart life. But listen to this statement. John MacArthur said it like this. He says, not until a person smashes himself against the demands of the law and the accusations of conscience does he recognize his helplessness and see his need for a savior. It's not until you run your boat with its patch up against a rock and you see that thing deflate that you're ever gonna realize the fact that you actually need a savior. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned him, sentenced him to death, will he be driven to the point of despair for himself to turn to Jesus Christ. What was the point of the law? To expose we needed a savior. That was the point. The main purpose tells us that if the law could have imparted life or salvation, then it would have gone against, listen to this, and this is tragic. It would have gone against the promises of God. It would have worked contrary to the promises of God. God doesn't work against himself. Because if it would have provided an alternative means to righteousness, to salvation, it would have made the tragic sacrifice of Jesus, his death, his burial, his burial, and his eventual resurrection, it would have made the sacrifice of Jesus unnecessary. So any church that lives, that the means is by the law, that's what Paul's fighting for here. If you are going to believe that it is a means by the law and religious rigor, then you just made Jesus' sacrifice for you unnecessary. That's the weight of what Paul's talking about. We cannot shackle that which has been made free. So the promises of God being grounded in grace requires only sincere faith. While the law being grounded in works demanded perfect performance. I wanna ask you a question. I didn't, that's a good statement. I didn't write it. Another unknown commentator wrote that one, but I wrote that, I saw it. Let me ask you this. How many of you have performed perfectly to this point in your life? 
So we need the power of God and we need to be grounded in the grace of sincere faith found in him and in him alone. I'm gonna ask the band to come back. The things that were set awry by sin were put right by him and then by him alone. He's promised came centuries before the law even existed. And how many of you are grateful that God isn't a liar? How many of you are grateful that God isn't a liar? Then why the law? It was to show us we needed him. It was intended for the Jew to know how to worship God through the law. It was actually intended that the Jew would know how to evangelize the world through the law. But they messed it up. They made it human made it by their own interpretation, and all they did was put shackles on themselves. So God promised, and in the end, he delivered, because he exposed even further our own inadequacies. God had to do it himself, and how many of you are grateful that God had to do it himself? (laughs) Church, I'm I'm not believing this. How many of you are grateful that God had to do it himself? He didn't need you, he didn't need me. He gave Jesus as a planned fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant so that you and I might have life and that we might be united, red and yellow, black and white, as the family of God, no longer segregated, no longer separated by barriers of culture or language. Church, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a second. Maybe today you're here and you go, I want to trust him. Maybe this is for the first time. It may be for the 10 millionth time. As a follower of Christ, you go, there's a step I can take and I just heard it. I need to learn a new language. I need to become more aware of my surroundings. I need to be more sensitive to the cultures that God has brought here. I was called as a disciple to make disciples of all nations and God brought the nations to me here in Middle Tennessee. I'm gonna ask you, what step are you to take? He said in Zechariah 4, 6, he said, look, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This past weekend, we got to see students set free from the shackles of sin. Church, some of us need to be set free from the shackles of our own interpretation. And we need to trust God into that next step so that we can advance the gospel in the hearts of people that live right across the street, our neighbors, and they are cultural. They represent the nations. Church, you'd be praying about the step you need to take. But to that person here who goes, I've never trusted Jesus. I didn't know that he gave himself for me. I didn't know someone loved me enough to sacrifice themselves. If that's you, I encourage you to reach out to me. I want to pray with you. I want to talk with you. I want to walk with you. So email me at prayerthefellowship.cc, whether you're listening in this room or online. I want to show you the beauty of God's love for you. And it was on him. And you had nothing to do with it except to be a benefactor. Father, this morning we love you. We thank you for Jesus and we pray by the power of your spirit you would inhabit our minds and hearts right now. And show us the step that we are to take right now in this room individually. No one can take it for us. Whether it be for salvation, then we celebrate today is the day of salvation. But if it be for me to be more active in your kingdom and whatever means you determine, then I pray you'd show me through generosity and through knowledge, how to take that step. God, make me active for your kingdom right here in Middle Tennessee to all ends of the earth in Jesus' name.